0: So much more interesting
3: for the listener. Welcome to At Your Service. Brad Young in with you this evening until 10 o'clock. Uh, let me just tell you, it's great to be with you this evening. I, this is the first uh, time I've been on Camel X in the evening since June. I'm, I, I took a vacation, first vacation in three years, just like the rest of the world. First vacation in a long time. Uh, and then Cardinal Baseball has been, of course, very busy. So uh, this is my first time here on At Your Service since the end of June. So uh, glad you're with us this evening. We've got a full slate of stuff to go through uh, this evening for you, including, of course, news of the day. We've got a, a lot of developments. You just heard Sean Michael Lyle talk about uh, that today the, uh, the the defendant in the Captain David Dorn case was found guilty. Stephen Cannon was found guilty of first-degree murder and also several other charges related to the 2020 killing of retired St. Louis Police Captain David Dorn. And that is an excellent, excellent outcome. And really, one of the most shocking things is that this guy was even prosecuted. When you look at all of the other criminal activity that's been going on in St. Louis for the past few years... It's refreshing that there's been a conviction. I mean, when was the last time we saw a big conviction in St. Louis of a crime? It's been a while. And, oh, I oh I know, because there's no crime in St. Louis. That's so, silly me. What was I thinking? Of course there's no crime in St. Louis. That's why we don't have any criminal prosecutions. Uh, but, no, that's, of course, not the case. And I applaud the circuit attorney's office, just like I'll be critical of the circuit attorney's office when when they deserve criticism, I'll also give praise. When they deserve praise, and this was a this was an excellent conviction. It had to be done. And you know, I just remember, I like to go uh, to the Fox Theater. Okay? I like to see shows at the Fox Theater. And shortly after Captain David Dorn was killed, the Fox Theater ran had a something on their banner uh, outside about the uh, about supporting the police. And they received so much criticism that they had to take it down. So for a while in St. Louis, you couldn't even publicly support the police without the trolls coming out and criticizing you to the point that you have to give in. So I'm glad I applaud the circuit attorney's office. Glad uh, that the evidence was there to prove uh, that uh, Mr. Cannon was guilty. Of course, there'll be an inevitable appeal of that, which is the right thing. They should have uh, an appellate process, should have due process. I always support that. Uh, but at this point, it's looking good for the prosecution. And I'm glad that they carried that forward. Also, of course, we got Matt Pajeski sitting in this evening. Hey, Matt, it's good to see you. Good to see you, too, Brad. Uh, I Again, I haven't seen anybody for weeks. So uh, I did. A, I've done a couple of shows during the day with interviews. But uh, thanks for running the board. Of course, you ran the board for the new uh, new sports guy. He was in Matt and I'm sorry, his last name is
4: Paulie. That's right. That's two Matt P's now.
3: Matt that's right. Two Matt Ps. Uh I won't forget that. Yeah. But I did read the article. He mentioned it towards the end of his show about the article, the write-up uh, by Dan Caesar in the post dispatch. That was uh that was very enlightening, and I think he's gonna be an excellent addition to the Camo X lineup. And I didn't mention this, but I do want to play this audio clip here in just a moment because today, July twenty. 1969. You know what happened on this date? If you if you were alive, of course. Matt Pajeski, not alive. I was only three, so it's not like I remember this. Uh, but this is the day. Uh, what is that number? Uh, 53 years ago, where this happened. It's one small step for man,
4: one giant leap for mankind.
3: That was uh, 53 years ago today, Neil Armstrong. Now, Matt, I want to ask you, do you know about – I'm not going to go into some weird conspiracy. And I love teasing uh, Trish Siegman about this because she tried to tell me that we never went to the moon. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I'm not going to get into that. But as far as that clip that you just heard, grammatically – Neil Armstrong admitted that he made a mistake when he said it. Do you know what? It,
4: do you no. know what the grammatical one error is? Small state, one st- small step for man. I already know the quote, so I. I
3: <laughs> okay, that's okay. One small
4: step for man. One, one he, giant leap, leap for, for mankind. mankind. What's well, the mistake? I don't know.
3: The contrast is supposed to be. There's supposed to be the word a. It's supposed to be one small step for a man, but one giant leap for all of mankind. But he was a little nervous stepping on the moon, and he blew the line. But isn't man, like, it's, it can be seen as plural, like man I know, but is but it was just supposed humans. to be just him. Oh. It's one small step for one person. Oh, okay. That but it's a sense. giant step for all mankind. That makes sense. Oh, but, yeah. but whenever he said one small step for man, he was talking in the big sense when he should have been talking in the little sense yeah. to contrast it with, Mankind. He, he went
4: off script. He, screwed he went up, off yeah. script
3: exactly. And but you can't blame the dude. No. He just at the, at that point in time, I don't know if you know this or not, but there was a big concern about whether if you landed on the moon, would you just get sucked into all the moon dust? That was something that NASA didn't know until they landed something on the moon.
4: Do you think the astronauts knew? Like well, that well, was they knew that they,
3: they knew that it was a possibility, and also. As I've watched the footage on this, given the anniversary and previous anniversaries, I think the ladder was broken. Whenever it came out of the capsule, it busted when it hit the lunar surface. Mm-hmm. So there could have been a real possibility that that video we saw, and he's coming down the ladder and the thing breaks and he falls on his butt. I mean, that could have, <laughs> that could have easily happened. I would, have, I would like to see that. Think about how history would be changed if the first landing on the moon was some guy's rear end. Yeah. You know that would have completely. It'd be two moons. It'd be, <laughs> you know, you beat me to the punchline. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you, you sorry. Be, that's okay. Your punchline was much better than mine. Mine was more in the in the in the gutter, but yours was. It was a great punchline. Two moons. So it would have made it completely different. Uh, but yes, that was fifty-three years ago today that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, at least allegedly and if you're if you're a conspiracy theorist that thinks that we never went to the moon, I actually want to hear from you after the next segment. But coming up after the break, speaking of uh of lunar activity and space activity, we just saw this past week all of these stunning initial test photographs or test images, not really photographs, but they're images from the James Webb. Space telescope that's parked about a million miles away from the Earth. So I wanted to reach out to a friend of the show, Dr. Ryan Ogliori, to talk to him about what it is we're actually seeing from these photographs and what we might see from this uh, space telescope in the future. Coming up after the break, Dr. Ryan Ogliori, and after that, phone lines will be open because at your service means we like to hear. From you, Brad Young sitting in tonight on Camo X. We'll be right back.
0: We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? Over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch.
3: Well, as I mentioned before the break, this is the 53rd anniversary of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. So I wanted to carry a space theme forward in this segment. And of course, we've all been seeing over the past week, these amazing first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. And seriously, scientists and the public alike are just amazed at this. The Uh, I I don't even know how to put some of it into words. I read that some scientists were even brought to tears seeing some of these pictures. So to help us understand exactly what we're seeing, I reached out to a friend of the show, astrophysicist Dr. Ryan Ogliori. He's a Ph.D., assistant professor of physics at Washington University. Hey, uh, Dr. Ogliori, it's great to talk to you again.
5: Brad, thank you for having me.
3: Uh, let's start with some basics in case everyone doesn't geek out on this as much as we might. So in in terms of its operation, how is the James Webb Telescope different from what we've all heard about for 30 years, the Hubble Space Telescope?
5: Yeah, the, the primary difference is that James Webb will look at a different wavelength of light, different colors than Hubble, And that's the primary thing. So Hubble looked at optical light, what we can see with our eyes, uh, a little bit higher frequency ultraviolet light. But James Webb is looking at infrared light. So this is wavelengths longer than the wavelength of light. Um, And that's super important uh, for two reasons. One is that when we look out into space at very, very far distances, a lot of these galaxies, like in the amazing pictures they showed last week, are obscured by dust and dust absorbs optical light. So James Webb looking at these longer wavelengths could look right through the dust and see mm. what's behind there and we saw that with those spectacular images. Just uh, like one reason. Yeah, yeah, go go ahead.
3: Well, I guess to make a comparison with to folks, whenever there's our satellites that are currently in orbit, they look down at the earth if they're optical satellites and there's cloud cover, then all they see are clouds, but depending right. on the type of satellite, particularly if it's infrared, or others, it can look through the clouds. This is a similar type of distinction.
5: Yeah, yeah, very similar, very similar. And the other, the I think the more important thing to me, and that's something that's hard to communicate, is that the infrared, lots of exciting stuff happens in the infrared, and it's like molecules kind of dance in the infrared. They vibrate, rotate at those frequencies. So they absorb and emit light at those interesting frequencies. So the real the real power of James Webb is in its spectroscopy so we love the images and the images are very cool to show but the really cool thing is like a histogram and that's a little bit harder to show to the public we're all joking that the president should have released a histogram instead of the picture but that histogram is what gives you chemistry chemistry gives you geology and when you combine chemistry and geology with astronomy then you really really know what's going on so that's the thing that is the real power of James Webb.
3: Right. And I want to get into that, the histogram angle, a little bit. uh, Once we get into some of this discussion a little bit further, we're talking to astrophysicist Dr. Ryan Ogliori from Washington University. And uh, the the fact that the Webb telescope is in the infrared primarily, uh, it would be a problem if that were in orbit around the Earth, wouldn't it?
5: That's right. Yeah. So... um, if you've ever seen movies or seen night vision goggles, right, those work in the infrared. So anything warm emits in the infrared. So this telescope needs to be very, very cold, which is one of the reasons that the orbit it's at, so James Webb isn't orbiting the Earth, it's orbiting the sun at a special place called the Lagrangian point. So one of there's many benefits to this. One of them is that it keeps it, the telescope very, very cold, Because uh, the Earth emits light and heat, and the Sun does, and where it is at this Lagrangian point, it can block both the Earth and the Sun's light with a single uh, star shade, and that's that Mm -hmm. big thing you see in the pictures below the the primary mirror.
3: Got it. And, And because of that, then, if it's a million miles, literally a million miles, not just picking that number out of a hat, but I know it's literally a million miles away, because of that, if... Uh, if, say, for example, something goes wrong like happened with Hubble and we had to service it with the space shuttle at the time, this telescope, the James Webb telescope, it's on its own, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it's it's not. We're not going to be able to get there. Um, they can do a lot from the ground. Like one of the hexagonal parts of the mirrors was struck by a micrometeoroid, and this is expected. Um, but they're able to adjust the, the tilt and awe of that particular sub-mirror of the main mirror um to pretty much mitigate that effect. So they can do a lot from the ground, more so they can than they can do with Hubble, but we can't go up there and fix it, which is what happened with Hubble, which actually had a design flaw that we needed to fix. That's it's not really accessible uh where James Webb is.
3: Hmm. No, it is not. And we you've mentioned these photographs that we've seen from last week. We saw some initial, I think they were uh, photographs a couple of weeks ago that were just used to uh, focus all of the equipment on the Webb telescope. But last week there were some just stunning images that, according to uh, scientists, go back to 300 million years after the Big Bang started our universe. So a a question, and I I don't want to to swerve into uh, Star Trek terminology, so I want to be very careful here being a big Star Trek fan, but how is it that a telescope can actually look backwards in time? How does that work?
5: Yeah, yeah. So this, it's basically required. And this is because light moves at a fixed speed everywhere in the universe, no matter if you're moving to Earth relative or not. And this was Albert Einstein's, uh, in my opinion, his most important insight. And this led to a fundamental change in our understanding of space and time. And this is, you're right. It's hard not to get into the Star Trek stuff when we talk (laughs) about this, but basically like light moves at a a fixed speed. And so something very far away is going to take light a long time to get to us. But this is something I always struggle with when I'm talking to people because after learning Einstein's special relativity, which is something we teach to freshmen at Wash U, it's something that's very accessible. This idea of a kind of a universal now Like a simultaneous thing. There is no universal now. And once you understand what Einstein proposed 120 years ago, uh, that idea of now totally goes away. There's no such thing as Mm -hmm. like a now for me and that star. There's only what we call the space time interval. And this is a kind of a product of that.
3: Well, I'm glad that that smart people like you are looking at that because, again, I just keep thinking about a breach in the space-time continuum and Captain Janeway saying that time travel always gives her a headache. So I'll leave the real science to guys like you, and then I'll just uh, talk about Star Trek geeky stuff. But but whenever we see these pictures, I mean, we're not only seeing images uh, from across the vastness of space like we saw with the Carina Nebula, uh, but we're also seeing some closer things. I'll get to that in a moment, but this Carina Nebula, it looks like there's there's dust clouds all over the place. And you mentioned dust a moment ago. Is that actually dust?
5: Yeah, that was one of the images. We had a live watch party at WashU with our, our students there. and. I have many different interests in astronomy and astrophysics, but like star formation, planet formation is like my primary interest. And I've looked at the Carina Nebula a lot. And when they showed that image, I gasped and it kind of startled all the kids next to me. But uh, it was completely stunning. It was front Mm. page New York Times. It was spectacular. So that image what I think is, is analogous to how our solar system forms. So that's a molecular cloud. So it's a cloud of dust and gas, lots of like very primitive material. And then within it, we're forming stars of various masses and the really, really uh, large stars form first and photo evaporate. So they're so big and, and so hot, they're destroying everything around them, which is kind of stunning. And how can star formation work? How can we get smaller stars with planets? did we experience an environment like that? And work in my lab where we're studying meteorite dust showed that we did form an environment like that, uh, like we saw with the Carina Nebula. So when I saw that, I saw like a higher resolution going back four and a half billion years to how we formed, and it was totally stunning. And I'm I'm looking forward to more data from from the Carina Nebula, Orion Nebula, where these star formation events are are occurring, which is what exactly happened here. So that's that was great and that is dust and gas and like planets are forming right there too.
3: You know, we're coming up here on a break and and I've got a lot more questions for you because I mm-hmm. really enjoy this. Can you stick around through the break with us? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, the break will just be a few minutes. When we come back from this break, more with Dr. Ryan Ogliori from Washington University about what we're seeing in the from the James Webb space telescope and we're also going to talk about what things we may see in the future we talked about the past but now we want to talk about what we might see in the future not seeing into the future but what we hope to see from the james webb space telescope in coming years at your service camo x don't go away
0: after the end of a good fight you deserve a ice cold reward
3: On this uh, 53rd anniversary of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, it's Space Week here. And I, I wanted to talk to uh, Dr. James Ogliori about what we're seeing from the Webb Space Telescope. And you talked a moment ago, Dr. Ogliori, you talked about the Carina Nebula and that picture that most of us have seen. It's stunning. Of the, You can see the dust. But here's what I want to ask you. I saw today there was a side-by-side picture of the Carina Nebula taken by the Webb telescope and the Carina Nebula taken by the Hubble. And the the difference, I thought, was interesting because on the picture from Hubble, you saw the dust, but that was the end of it. And yet when you saw the picture from the Webb telescope, you could literally see through the dust to star formations behind the dust. Does that highlight that difference between optical light and infrared Wavelengths that you were talking about earlier.
5: Yeah, that's right. So, and those images is only a fraction of the data there. So we can extract different parts of that spectrum and make a different image from a single uh, capture from from James Webb. So there is just a, a, a forest of data in <laughs> that one image, and that's why I'm super excited about it. Like we can see different uh, types of molecular vibrations there and understand the chemistry that's happening in this molecular cloud which is is forming uh, stars and planets in the Carina nebula so it's it's very rich and part of yeah part of it is that we we don't get obscured by that dust between us and the Carina nebula but the, the, more, the more of it is that the chemistry is embedded mm-hmm. in that data as well. And we can keep making more and more images. It's really cool.
3: That, that is really cool. But, but here's what I thought was interesting in that first batch of images that we saw. We saw these images of, of star formation that was 300 million years after the Big Bang. We saw things that were still billions of miles away. And yet at the same time, are billions of light years away, but at the same time, there was a picture of Jupiter. In there. So uh, is the is the Webb telescope going to be primarily used for this distant uh, uh, astro-imaging, or is there actually a use for the Webb telescope within our own solar system?
5: Yeah, there is an enormous amount of science that's going to come for kind of our local space environment, what we call planetary science. I was just at a meeting where they have a James Webb person talking about all the opportunities for planetary science And I'm super excited about Jupiter. Like you say, that was just a testing image to make sure that the telescope can track an object that's moving as quickly as Jupiter in the sky, whereas a galaxy is just sitting there. So this is an engineering challenge that they nailed, like they've nailed every other engineering challenge so far. Um, And it's very, very cool. And for Jupiter, I'm especially excited about, if you look at that Jupiter image, you see it's moon Europa off to the lower left. And there is this debate in mm-hmm. our field where is, is Europa, is there a liquid ocean underneath Europa's ice crust? There probably is, but are some images from Hubble showing water, ice fountaining, spouting off the surface of Europa. Uh, and since then we've sent spacecraft to Jupiter, like the Juno spacecraft, and they haven't seen these, these ice plumes, these water plumes, but because water, the water molecule dances in the infrared James Webb will really see these water plumes emanating from Europa if they're there. And if they're there, I think we can go grab some of that, bring it back to Earth Mm -hmm. and see if we have any, like, microscopic bacteria in there, which is possible on Europa.
3: Amazing. We're talking to astrophysicist Dr. Ryan Ogliori from Washington University. And you mentioned a a term earlier, and it, it kind of organically now fits into our conversation, when you mentioned a histogram. Explain what a histogram is because this helps explain what you're saying about looking at Europa or even maybe looking at other exoplanets. What is a histogram?
5: Yeah, so a histogram is a a plot basically showing, um, in this context, I'm talking about how much light is coming from an object at one wavelength and then how much light is coming from uh, that object at a slightly different wavelength. And that repeated over 100 or 1,000 different wavelengths, and that will make a curve, a shape. And that shape is diagnostic of certain molecules, certain atoms that are in the substance. So that that shape isn't as exciting as seeing these amazing images, but that shape is what gives us the real science from James Webb. So um, say uh, water, like I just mentioned on Europa, has a very distinctive um, uh, histogram, a, a mm-hmm. spectral signature that James Webb will measure, and we actually already saw that in the atmosphere of an exoplanet elsewhere in the galaxy, which is totally phenomenal.
3: Right. And actually, wow, it looks like uh, it, that takes me right into my next question, because on this exoplanet, I was reading about it last week, there was a histogram on the on the, the, the image from this planet, this exoplanet, and it was categorizing the, the possibility or maybe even the probability or the actual existence of the atmosphere and the composition of the atmosphere. Is that something that we can see from a telescope that we're looking, you know, uh, untold light years away, we can look at the actual composition of the atmosphere?
5: Yeah. and uh, All the things we can do nowadays in modern astronomy, this is number one on my list for the most remarkable thing that we can do. It's totally amazing. So that planet with an atmosphere passes in front of its star and as it does so, light from the star is passing through the atmosphere and those different gases absorb at the different wavelengths. And so we make that histogram, that spectrum uh, of that, that corner of the exoplanet as it passes in front of its star. And that spectrum is now diagnostic of those uh, those molecules like H2O or nitrogen or whatever gases are in that atmosphere. So then we can we can essentially give you the composition of exoplanetary atmospheres with this telescope, which... You know, it's simple when you think about it scientifically, but then when you think about what you're doing, it's completely remarkable.
3: Oh, it's mind-blowing to think we're looking at a planet, thousand, an exoplanet, thousands of light years away, uh, and at that point we can tell what's in the atmosphere. I mean, again, sorry to make the Star Trek comparison, but when but when the Enterprise goes into orbit, the first thing they do is to say, give us a scan of the planet and a scan of the atmosphere. And, of course, that's fiction, But, but we're seeing fiction become reality.
5: Right, right. It's 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 pretty amazing, and it's all you know. We knew about spectroscopy for for a couple of hundred years now, um, but the light collecting power, the angular resolution, the like the engineering requirements that that are necessary to make this happen are the real victory with Webb. So the the engineering that went into that is is the mind-blowing thing that mm. making a telescope that big, that well-tuned, that far from Earth, like the people that built that thing are deserve all the credit for oh, this. It's truly am- marvelous.
3: It's amazing. And, and I, I can hear the excitement in your voice, and it reminds me of a quote that I once heard from Carl Sagan, who said, somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. Uh, how does that quote, at least in your mind— apply to what we're doing right now with the James Webb telescope.
5: Yeah, yeah, I love Carl Sagan. I love that quote. So I think that in the the specifics of that is that if you have a really great instrument that takes a lot of really good data, that unknown part comes for free, basically. So when we're thinking of NASA missions, and I'm leading a NASA mission uh, concept right now, you're very focused on hypothesis-driven science, you have a science traceability matrix. You have this science question, this data will answer this. And then when the mission goes up, you know, you want to do that. But then all of these other unknowns, uh, this unknown stuff comes into play because you have a nice instrument that's getting good data and is looking at a lot of cool things. So you're going to find things that you didn't know to talk about when you're trying to justify the cost of such a mission. And all that comes for free. All this data is public. This is the People's Telescope and everybody can mine this data. I can sit down on my computer and find something cool, too. Um, and that's another aspect of modern astronomy is that it's it's truly for everybody. So I'm super excited by the quality and the quantity of data that this telescope will bring down.
3: Well, I'll be checking back with you in the coming weeks and months uh, as more information starts coming out so you can break it down for us. You do an excellent job of, of making astrophysics understandable, and I appreciate your time. Dr. Ryan Ogliori from Washington University, hey, thank you so much for being with us tonight on X. Thank you, Brad. Great to talk to you. I love talking to him uh, because he makes it so that even a lawyer can understand it, uh, which is pretty darn amazing. We're going to open the phone lines here, and we've got some other things to talk about this evening, but what do you think, if you've seen those pictures, what kind of Reaction? Did you have when you're seeing some of those images from? I'm sorry, I almost did a Carl Sagan billions and billions line there, but but what what came to your mind when you saw these images? I'll tell you one thing that came to my mind as a Christian is that I thought, would that from another person's perspective, would it challenge a person's faith or would it bolster a person's faith? And I I can see both sides of that, aside just from the the science perspective and the marveling at the science that's involved, how does that impact or how might that impact a person's faith when you're seeing these pictures that have traveled for billions of light years? How does that fit in with our worldview when it comes to a biblical perspective? 314-436-7900. Phone lines are open at your service on (music) CamelX. Welcome back to At Your Service on Camel X. We just finished wrapping up a couple of segments talking about the photographs or the images, rather, from the James Webb Space Telescope. If you've seen those, if you've got some thoughts or ideas, call or text 314-436-7900. Hey, Mike, welcome to Camel X.
1: Hi, Brad. How are you doing this evening?
3: I'm doing great, sir. Thanks for calling in.
1: Uh, thanks for having me. i just just uh, leaving a work dinner at Citizen Kane's. Thanks, Kathy, for the good dinner this evening and caught the very very tail end of the episode. I'll catch up with it on the podcast, but I did just want to call in and share. I'm um, definitely a bit of a astronomy en- enthusiast, Good. and hey, I've definitely been interested, to say the least, by the web uh, images. I've seen a handful of them thus far. I'm glad you had the good doctor from Washington University on this evening. Um, Personally, I've always been intrigued by astronomy. I do happen to find a lot of beauty and uh, sense of understanding uh, when looking at the stars, the images especially other people take, or just looking through the telescope myself. Um, So I think, to your point, there is a lot of overlap. Um, We probably should look at them separately, but it's hard not to compare the two. Hopefully everyone has faith in a creator that's out there, and it's hard not to look at some of these images and not have a better understanding of the scope of creation that is out there and help, Bring a little bit of the faith together through what we see through the science that we're able to see with our own eyes and through these fantastic instruments NASA and other uh, agencies are able to create for us.
3: Oh, and, and that's so true, and it's and it's also Mike a matter of perspective. Uh, if you swim in the daily waters of politics, you know every politician thinks that they're the the center of the universe, and yet when you when you see these images and you see the vast. Distances that are involved in the vastness of space and the intricacies of other planets. You realize that that I, from my perspective and from for me in this universe, I'm a pretty small part. And those images help place that into perspective.
1: its Definitely, very, very true. You're right? We do. It is easy to seem infinitely small when you realize the full size and scale of the universe that's out there. Whether it's what we can see with our own eyes or whether it's Hubble or now Webb, could see that much further away from us. And then you start realizing that apparently the further things are away from us, the faster it is they are moving away from us. And then you you start talking about numbers that are hard to fathom. sure you can write down groups of zeros <laughs> and give them a, a, a name to that number, but it's hard to truly appreciate how vast that is. Uh, but to that point, then you also realize that, in the end, at least for me personally, the, the Creator does infinitely love every one of us personally, so then it all puts it more back in a controlled perspective as well. You feel small, but then you feel big and loved and connected. In, in the end as well. So well, all yeah, it's a sure. uh, wonderful thing. Yeah,
3: and connected. I mean, Psalms 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God, and so it, it's yeah. one of those things that when I saw it, and I, I kind of got choked up when I saw it, but t- from my perspective as a person of faith, I looked at it and I said, wow, what an amazing creation— uh, and that drew me just like yes. Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and to me, that's what jumped out when I saw those pictures. And yet, uh, as I love to have uh, deep conversations with folks, I just love it. That's why I do this on Camel X. As I've talked with other Christians, they have told me that they've, uh, you know, to some extent, it's challenged their faith because of the time and the distance, and you look at Genesis one one and other things, Mike, from your perspective, does that challenge your faith at all?
1: yeah I understood yeah if, my understanding is if you add the years in the Bible, literally they come out to roughly six thousand sixty six hundred years roughly start to finish and and that's understandable and and true, but to your point I, I'm only so deep in understanding, but at some point, at least Pope Benedict, I think, prior to becoming Pope, had written something about this with respect to how are we supposed to view Genesis, maybe similar to but different from the rest of the books of the Bible. But again, to that point, if you're going to go from a hardcore literalist perspective, yes, it should challenge you, but then you got to say, doesn't God still want to know us? And, and is there yes. something else we should take away from this that maybe we can't understand right now? <laughs> and, and it's that all-knowing, like Pope Benedict apparently also said something, I think, again, prior to becoming Pope, where God does want to be known. And he wants to be known through many ways, definitely a personal relationship with us. And yet there's also ways to see hints of him through the beauty of his creation, whether it be astronomy or the natural world around us or each of us as individual people as well, right? Right. So for me personally, I can definitely, it's hard to fathom, well, it's 13.8 billion years old or 6,600. I cannot explain that. I don't want to wash it away, but <laughs> we still can and should have faith. Uh, independent of our understanding of that, and hopefully, if not this life, then the next life, we may have a better, deeper understanding of that. We just got to live the good life while we're here wow. to make it there.
3: Mike, excellent words, sir. Thank you so much for calling in. I'm glad you left the dinner when you did, uh, and could uh, catch us here on Camo X.
1: Me, me too. Thanks, Brad. Have a good one. Great to be on the show. Thank good you. Night.
3: It's great to talk to you. Uh, it, it, it does. It, it's just. It's. It screams to grab your attention. Uh, when you see these photographs, and if you haven't seen them, I, wa- I really hope that you'll go and Google and look at some of these pictures from the Webb Telescope. And as we heard from Dr. Ogliori, that there's, there's more to come. I mean, we're going to see lots more science, particularly with what he said about the histogram, because uh, he, he mentioned Europa. And right now there is a there's a large debate in the scientific community about whether there is active moving water on Europa. Now, think about this for a second. When it's cold here in St. Louis, it's you know it's just below freezing, maybe below zero. I went camping as an Eagle Scout once, and it got below zero, and I thought I was gonna die. I mean, it was really cold. But uh, but yet when you look at Europa, being exponentially further away from the sun as is Earth, you think how could there be any moving water? How could there be anything? If there's water there, wouldn't it all be ice? And yet. Of course, scientists tell us that if there's tectonic plates that are moving, that movement causes friction. There could be volcanic activity from the core or the mantle of the moon. And that generates heat, which, of course, then could make the water moving, not just frozen ice. It may be very high in salt and which also keeps it from freezing. But we're going to be learning all of that through this histogram, through the ability to look at Europa and planets and exoplanets from the perspective of what is in their atmosphere, what is the composition of their atmosphere. We're going to get to see all of that as these images and the science starts coming from the Webb telescope. My biggest concern, I think there's about at least a 10 to a 20 year expected life expectancy uh, for the James Webb telescope. My only concern is if it gets whacked by a meteor, then at that point we can't go and fix it. We, we can't send Roto-Rooter a million miles from the earth to unplug the drain. That's just not an option. So if something goes wrong, thankfully we have ways to compensate for a lot of that. But if it gets whacked by a meteor, uh, the whole thing could be toast. And I certainly hope that that does not happen. At your service tonight, we've got a lot more coming up after the break on Camo X. Don't go away.